I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Linda Carducci, and we're talking about music that specifically deals with the night, the nocturne. But as you'll hear, defining that is sometimes easier said than done. We explore the origins of the nocturne, who came up with the idea, how it evolved, who wrote the most varied settings, and how it's still with us today in pop and film scores in the 20th and 21st centuries. We have the opportunity to do something really funny in this episode, Linda, because the Webster Dictionary definition of nocturne is simply a work of art dealing with evening or night, especially a dreamy, pensive composition for the piano. I mean, I think that about says it all, don't you think? I mean, should we just go get a coffee or something? (laughs) We can end this one early. That is rather concise, isn't it? It is. Yeah, although I might add that uh, that may be the definition of the 19th century nocturne, but as was typical during the 20th century, all of a sudden all bets are off and and the forms are strengthened and and they're relaxed and Mm -hmm. uh, called other things than than we traditionally think. So, yes, uh, I think that definition applies to maybe the 19th century nocturnes. And of course, the answer for us lies a little bit deeper. So we can go to the Harvard Music Dictionary definition, which says, Nocturne, the title for certain instrumental works of the 19th and 20th centuries, typically for solo piano. Such works generally do not derive from the 18th century genre of ensemble music termed the noturno. The title was first used in 1812 by John Field, whose 18 nocturnes employed the texture commonly associated with the repertory, a lyrical melody accompanied by broken chords pedaled to collect the harmonies. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll get to John Field and those nocturnes, which really do set off the genre in a moment, but we can look at the sentence just before that, because, Linda, this is another one of those things that's defined by what it is or what it is, and there's some exclusions. Instrumental works of the 19th and 20th centuries, typically for solo piano, generally not those deriving from the 18th century ensemble music termed noturno. Correct. Uh, The 19th century and 20th century forms didn't evolve as a sort of an evolution from the 18th century form of Mozart. Mm -hmm. Just for clarification, when we talk about 18th century, of course, we're talking about the 1700s. Yeah. Uh, Mozart, Haydn, early Beethoven, Mm -hmm. they did some noturno pieces, but those were not intended to evoke nighttime. Instead, those were intended to be performed at nighttime in maybe a small garden party, that sort of thing. When we talk, though, John, as you said, about the 19th century and the 20th century uh, nocturnes, those are of a different form. They did not evolve directly out of the 18th century. And even thinking about Mozart, one of his most recognizable tunes, Eine Kleine Nachtmusik, I mean, night music is in the name, but again, it isn't a nocturne. So let's go to the example literally in the definition, John Field's 18 Nocturnes. And we can actually, well, first, who was John Field? He was an Irish composer born in 1782 in London, and he died in 1837. His first nocturne came in 1812 when he's uh, about 30 years old. And we hear those characteristics mentioned In the definition, right in the first nocturne, Linda, from the beginning, a lyrical melody accompanied by broken chords pedaled to collect the harmonies. (laughs) 
a lyrical melody. I think we understand that pretty clearly. But what about broken chords pedal to collect the harmonies? Because now we're talking about something more. To briefly explain broken chords, that's what we're talking about when we mention arpeggios. So instead of playing an E-flat major chord again and again on downbeats, you play each note of the chord separately, breaking the chord. But Linda, something that may be a little unfamiliar is the phrase pedaled to collect the harmonies. Can you explain that for a moment as a pianist? What does that mean? What do you have to do with the piano? Well, traditionally, a chord is a structure. It's a harmonic device that provides harmony, traditionally, of three or more notes played simultaneously. So you, you hear them simultaneously. Sometimes, though, they are broken up. The the notes are not played simultaneously. They're played individually. The same notes, though, of that chord. Mm -hmm. So that would be an arpeggio. And by the way, Johann Sebastian Bach used broken chords all the time. He used them as melodies. Oh, yeah. He used them in his melodies a lot of times. But um, when we look at then, then arpeggio, which is a broken up chord, each note is played separately. But instead of each note of the chord being played and then released, silence, Played, released, silence, played, released. Instead, those three notes, each one is held down so that its sound continues on to the next note that's played. And then those two are held down until the third one is played. Or it could be a rolling of the three. But there is some simultaneous overlap of sound in an arpeggio when we talk about pedaling the chord. So you can achieve that by holding literally the keys down on the keyboard as you're going to the next note and sustaining the the previous one, but also with an actual pedal on the keyboard? Yes, you can also use the pedal. So you would play the first note and then pedal to, mm-hmm. to capture that note and then hold down the pedal as you play the remaining notes. Mm-hmm. You can release the pedal as need be, though, maybe for the melody. You don't want to cause any sort of dissonance. Yeah, you have to do a lot of juggling, I think, uh, when you play the piano. Maybe why I didn't really do well in my elective class on piano. It was an elective for a reason, but um, I never quite, I can never get a hold of those pedals. (laughs) And of course, rules are um, made to be broken as well, as we know in music. And perhaps the most famous set of nocturnes people are likely familiar with are actually the ones by Frederick Chopin. And he started writing his set in 1827, about 15 years after the first one by John Field. And they would take, they weren't writing them one after another, they'd be writing them and adding to them over the years. But Linda, what would you say is the biggest difference between the two, the nocturnes between Chopin and Field? I would say, you know, John Field was was uh, earlier than Frederick Chopin. And in fact, Frederick Chopin, as a young man, heard John Field as a pianist. Um, I think fields are a little simpler. Uh, they are less complex than the form that evolved under the hands of Frederick Chopin. Uh, they are less dense and they have less ornamentation than Frederick Chopin. And I think the focus is more on tranquility with the John Field piano nocturnes, as opposed to the Frederick Chopin piano nocturnes. Chopin has a bit more drama, as he does in almost all of his pieces. Uh, More ornamentation, again, a a very traditional trademark of Frederick Chopin. Um, Drama, piano piece um, that would be something almost as a performance piece. So something that we would listen to in a salon, not necessarily just to dream by. Mm, Yeah. I love how they are really different. John Field, to me, it feels very 
in the moment, me alone, solitude, a windless night. Maybe I'm um, standing in a field with the full moon and it's just, um, I don't know. But Chopin's are something more urgent, something more outward rather than maybe um, inward. And they, they actually knew each other. And I think Chopin admired uh, Field's music, but John Field did not quite feel the same way about Chopin. And uh, I think Chopin was an acquired taste for some back then, too. Could be. Each of them were writing nocturnes for piano. Each one was, a, was a, a, an accomplished pianist. But uh, as you mentioned, Chopin's are a bit more complex. They're more dense. Uh, they have a little bit more drama, I believe, to them. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I think that uh, some of the Chopin uh, nocturnes have a section where we have almost turbulence and then a resolution to a more mm. tranquil work. I don't get quite that complexity in the, uh, in the John Field nocturnes. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think the Nocturne has grabbed audiences, home musicians, and people is something a little bit deeper that is kind of below the surface, and that's kind of the um, that's the form of the piece. Nocturnes are typically in ternary form. Now, don't worry about the actual theory about ternary form because I'm definitely not. But what it means is we have something here we can describe in three parts, like A, B, A, meaning we have an A section a contrasting B section, and then we have the A section returning again in some form. It's not always exact. And we can really hear how ternary form sounds in practice with actually Chopin's Nocturne number 7, Opus 27, number 1 in C-sharp minor. It begins, of course, with the A section. We have that nice arpeggio on the left hand, very simple melodic line on the right. Now listen to this section a little bit later, and listen for maybe when you can hear something change, a transition into the B section. So that contrast can be tonal, like a different key, tempo, like we suddenly speed up here in uh, Chopin's Nocturne, or something else that contrasts with the A section. Sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it isn't, but that really helps. Yeah, it can be a change of mood, as you say. Uh, in this particular one, Opus 27, number one, it's a pretty marked change. He uh, changes meter. So the the initial, uh, the Nocturne starts initially in 4-4 four, four mm-hmm. meter. Um, the B section is 3-4. Yeah. And then Chopin returns to the A section at the end, um, pretty much in the same style as the first section, pretty much the same mood with maybe a little bit more ornamentation. And Chopin adds a little bit more sometimes, like a little cadenza before um, the A section returns. Funny to think about solo piano having its own cadenza, but little moments like that can... um, It's nice to know when you have the A, B, and A sections coming up. It's nice to know these things, and it's nice to then be surprised by little additions or subtractions um, there. And Chopin wrote, like we said, some of the most popular 
uh, nocturnes. He did, and we were talking about Opus 27, number one, just now, which is a rather dramatic, a bit dark, Mm -hmm. mysterious work. It's in a minor key. That's Opus 27, number one, but also contained within that Opus 27 is another one, number two which is also very popular and performed a lot. And um, in fact, um, Rachmaninoff would sometimes perform Mm. that as as an encore. That one is in a major key, and it is just beautiful, just a beautiful work. So it somewhat contrasts. Here we have two nocturnes written by Frédéric Chopin, published within Opus 27, but somewhat contrasting. So we can see that nocturnes don't have to have exactly one mood all the time. They can, yeah, they, they can have variations within that. Also, the other thing is when you're when our listeners listen, if they do, to Opus 27, number one and two, which I recommend that they do, they will notice that in number two, Chopin adds a fioritura section at the end, which is breathtaking. The right hand just goes off on its own little filigree that can be very difficult to perform, by the way. Just as, just as a little flight of fancy, a little filigree before he comes back to the main theme again. That one is beautiful, and so many of them are as well. And I love how they're short, because then you get surprises. You know, you're not listening to one whole long thing, and oh, maybe I didn't like that so much, and 10 minutes has gone by, but little surprises as they're only a few minutes uh, long. Now, John Fields and Frederick Chopin, they were the main composers or, or big influencers of this style for a while, from uh, what I can find, especially with Chopin in the 1830s, you start to see more of these uh, nocturnes being composed by other composers. Like in 1836, Clara Schumann writes a nocturne, as you see it called in pretty much everywhere, and it was not a standalone work, but rather it was within a larger piano work called Soiree Musicale. And in the music itself, I see it sometimes titled Noturno, but when you listen to it, it really sounds like a nocturne, even with its slight evolution from just a lyrical melody and broken chord accompaniment on a piano. There's just um, there's an instance where it makes sense that even though it's labeled Noturno, it does sound like a nocturne. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you see it pretty quickly start to mix up a little bit um, after only 20-something years of John Field's first nocturne. A cantabile melody, a singing melody in the in the treble, beautiful harmony in the bass, a lot of times broken chords, but not necessarily, um, and evoking that mood very much in, in Clara Schumann's Noturno. And we can see that it's not always the case that a Noturno or something even called a Nocturne is really quite a Nocturne in the same way. In Felix Mendelssohn's 1826 incidental music to Midsummer Night's Dream, there is a section that's often referred to as a Nocturne, has a beautiful horn solo, and it's not really like anything we've heard in a Nocturne so far. In the play, this is supposed to accompany a scene of sleeping lovers between acts. And I don't know, what do you think? Is this really a nocturne or is it a nighttime transition in a play? Maybe it's kind of like a tissue and Kleenex situation. I don't know when it comes to the nocturne, but sometimes you hear it and it's like, this feels like more of an interlude than rather the plot itself. 
I think this is an example of the breaking of the boundaries that took place during the Romantic era of the 19th century. The music was based on personal expression and freedom from structures of the 19th, of the 18th century. And so things began to be expanded during the Romantic era. And I think we're seeing an example of that with Felix Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream nocturne, an expansion of the primary definition of nocturne that we saw with John Field and Frederick Chopin. So now it's not necessarily a piano piece with a cantabile melody and a an arpeggiated uh, left-hand harmony. Now we're expanding into something that just maybe is uh, depicting a nighttime. And we'll get into how the nocturne evolves in the later part of the 19th century and going forward right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. As we know from so many other episodes, musical definitions and rules really break down going into the later part of the 19th century, and especially in the 20th. And we can take a look at three very different nocturnes composed in three years. In 1892, Mel Bonis, she wrote a nocturne for flute and piano, also within a larger work, um, Scenes from a Forest. In 1893, Augusta Holmes writes a song, and this is the first example of a song I found as a nocturne. It opens with the beautiful line, In the plains of the night your image leads. And in 1894, Alexander Scriabin, again a much uh, different nocturne here, won for the left hand alone. Now, music for the left hand, or more broadly, a single hand, while uncommon, was already composed by several different composers at this point. But it's interesting, Linda, to hear how Scriabin achieves the nocturne sound. I mean, when we think about the definition as being two separate musical ideas, melodic line and arpeggios, but that's just being played by one hand. <laughs> yeah, with Scriabin, he combines them. You're, you're correct. The, the traditional piano nocturne has the cantabile lyrical melody in the right hand in the treble, and the left hand is doing the arpeggios to accompany it. Well, Scriabin decided to combine them so that the entire work is done only for the left hand. So the question is, with one hand, how are you achieving the harmony, the arpeggiated harmony? It doesn't have to be arpeggiated, I guess. With a melody. And it's fascinating to see that he was able to do that, as other composers have done, as you've mentioned. There is a, a YouTube video of this being performed by Sergei Kuznetsov, and we can see him in concert with his right hand on his chair the whole time, and the left hand playing the entire work, which is a beautiful, mm. evocative, nighttime work by Alexander Scriabin. The top part of his left hand is playing the melody, mostly in the, the inter intermediary part of the uh, register of the piano. The left hand will uh, sort of alternate with the melody sometimes, but very quickly, so it sounds like it's almost simultaneously, the, the bass and yeah. the harmony. Together, it's just beautiful because you're hearing all together this really unique harmony that was pretty much a trademark of Alexander Scriabin. Yeah. And just after this, in 1899, Debussy completes Nocturnes, composed for orchestra. Now, this Debussy really 
did us dirty on this one because these are nocturnes, but of course, you listen to them, they don't sound like nocturnes because they're not based on the musical nocturne form. They're based on nocturne paintings. So <laughs> I, I find that very funny. They have a tranquility, a peaceful sense mm-hmm. to them, a um, almost a dreamlike meditation. So I guess that fits the definition of nocturne. But again, as you said, John, we're seeing now an expansion of the definition that we were, we were holding true in with uh, John Field. Yes. And they're, um, I mean, they're beautiful nocturnes by Debussy. If you just Google that, you'll also get to um, the paintings as well, which are, um, which are beautiful. And we've seen it now for so many different things uh, in different settings. We also see it in ballet with Copeland's uh, Rodeo, the chorale nocturne, I think it's titled. And this particular nocturne is a very peaceful, sensitive, soft, wistful work. It uh, depicts a young cowgirl, and she's alone at night out in the twilight, and she's thinking about her lover. And I think that uh, this is a, an example of the, the talent that Aaron Copland had for orchestral music that had this depiction of, of space, of openness, mm. you know, of limitless sky, you know, big western landscape and limitless sky and, and a wistful nature that many of the pioneers had when they were going west. Yeah. He, he depicts that so beautifully musically. And I think Copeland, with this example, it's kind of the first one that I think is culturally even relevant to us today in the United States, that that sound of Copeland. And to be fair, Copeland is much closer to us culturally and time-wise than Mendelssohn could ever hope to be. But just another great example of a nocturne within an ensemble. But he also wrote one for piano. I love this one. He calls it Midsummer Nocturne, and I love the addition of Midsummer in the title because I think that also really puts us in an actual place. When I was on air during the week, oftentimes when I had time in the summer, a little bit extra time, I would include this. Later in the night, I always thought it was nice to, you know, you have this and maybe the crickets or cicadas are out there. Uh, it's just a... Uh, Perfect companion. There is a mood of midsummer, isn't it? It's a freedom. It's a little bit of a liberty. We are not quite as constricted as we are during the rest of the of the year. Mm-hmm. We can be outside more later and hear all, as you say, the crickets and the sounds of nature. So there is really something about midsummer, and I think you're right to to include that in in his title. It was really a great guide for us. Yes, and also speaking of outside, Bartok's um, out of doors. Yeah, this is a work that I just think is fascinating. It's a suite for solo piano, maybe not for the uh, uninitiated. It's uh, it's a little bit different, as Bartok can be, mm-hmm. but it's it's um, an example of program music, at least at one part of it. Uh, program music meaning um, music that depicts something extra musical. For example, an animal or mm-hmm. nature or a painting or even a literary device. Well, Bartok in his um, out-of-doors suite has a, a nocturne. Again, this is for solo piano. And in this, instead of trying to depict a mood as some of the earlier nocturne writers did, he's almost going in a program way and depicting the sounds of nature that one would hear outdoors in the summer. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And we're hearing a much different sound than John Field 115 years earlier. This was 1926 when Bartok uh, wrote that nocturne for Out of Doors. One composer who wrote nocturnes for more settings than I could find of... Any other composer was Germaine Taifer. She wrote nocturnes for one piano, 
for two pianos, for flute and piano, for concert band, and more. <laughs> so it's fun to see how one composer applies it to all of these different settings, and they're not all the same. She's an inventive composer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recommend listening to her work. And something I was not aware of until you mentioned it, actually, Linda, were the nocturnes that Dave Brubeck wrote. I had not known these. Dave Brubeck, uh, of course, the jazz the jazz pianist. He's known for, for Take Five, primarily. That's his main signature piece. Mm-hmm. But he very much liked the Frederick Chopin nocturnes for solo piano, and so he wrote his own nocturnes that are somewhat riffs on the Chopin nocturnes. Yeah, and they have interesting titles as well. The most interesting one, perhaps is one called A Misty Morning. That I, there You can find all kinds of things in nocturnes, even with Dave Brubeck, A Misty Morning. A Misty Morning. Now, I guess morning could be midnight or, or 1 a.m. Okay, that's true, too, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree enough. with you. He probably didn't intend that. <laughs> no, no, no. And, I mean, we're getting on here towards um, closer to today. Daft Punk, one of my favorite groups, wrote a nocturne for the 2010 movie Tron Legacy. And I'd actually not heard this. I've not seen that movie, actually, although they're one of my favorite groups. This is so funny to me, because I wonder, would we even have this two centuries later if it wasn't for John Field? I think we would have this musical device. I mean, we are humans. We were not nocturnal, so the nocturnal is interesting to us or spooky or mysterious, so we'll write about it. Mm -hmm. But we wouldn't even have this orchestral music written by Daft Punk, I think, or at least called this, in 2010, if it wasn't for John Field. And um, even one more nocturne, one that Billy Joel composed. 1971. Yeah, for one of his uh, early albums, uh, Cold Spring Harbor. We uh, owe a lot to John Field for even bringing this into our consciousness. Yes. This was a fun look at a particular genre that had its time and place and grew from there. And I think we would have always written about the night with our curiosity, love, and and fear of it. But yeah, without John Fields in 1812, we wouldn't have this fun little gem of a, of a genre. Yes, something that we we can enjoy from all eras. And I hope everyone uses this episode as a jumping off point. Maybe you have a favorite composer. See if they wrote a nocturne. Maybe you have a composer you really don't like. Maybe see if they wrote a nocturne and you might be surprised. Okay, and with that, it's time to get to some listener email. What do we have, Linda? Well, it's always fun to interact with our listeners Mm -hmm. through these comments that they send us. We very much appreciate that. We love the feedback. Uh, We love hearing from you with episode ideas or questions or comments. Sarah sent us this email. She said, I recently discovered your podcast and have been binge listening to catch up. I really enjoy the deep dives and insights into all that you discuss. I don't think you've done one yet on Sibelius or any of his pieces, if I remember correctly, and I would love to hear more about him. I fell in love with his work in high school when we performed Finlandia and the first movement of his violin concerto. I personally feel his third and fifth symphonies are some of the most beautiful music ever composed. Thank you so much for all the good content. Well, thank you, Sarah, for that very good suggestion. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah. I also fell in love with Sibelius when I played his music in high school, also Finlandia, but also his second symphony, which is um, maybe my favorite, uh, one of my favorites from him. So maybe you'll be happy to know, Sarah, that Jean Sibelius has been added to the list for this season, so keep an eye out for that. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for joining me for this daytime conversation about all things nocturne. 
Thank you, John. Enjoy your evening. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.